0: Listener
1: Production. So I've been a journalist covering the news for 18 years now, and just a very few times during those years, I've read a big headline and thought, oh no, I know that person. And that happened two years ago when Sean Turnell, an Australian economist disappeared in Myanmar in Southeast Asia.
2: There are growing concerns over an Australian man detained in Myanmar just days after a military coup overthrew the nation's leader. Professor Sean Turnell's been in military detention in Myanmar for more than a month. Sean Turnell had been working as an economic advisor to Aung San Suu Kyi before the military took control.
1: So this man, an economics lecturer, was my tutor back in my uni days, 20 years ago. And I just couldn't believe that this Humble, smiley economics nerd Was at the centre of this shocking story And while diplomats worked behind the scenes And politicians called for his release Sean was just sitting there In a hot, wet, claustrophobic squalid, rat and mosquito
0: infested cell. One of my Myanmar colleagues, for instance, had electrodes attached to him uh, and electrocuted and beatings were really common amongst them and and I used to see prisoners all the time who'd been beaten and whipped and they had sort of scars on their back and, and ointment applied after these beatings.
1: It took almost two years for him to finally be released and now, in this episode, I finally get to meet him again to hear him tell the story. So that is our briefing. First, here are today's big headlines.
2: Hey, Katrina Blowers here with you. It is Tuesday, the 14th of November. So Optus has explained what caused last week's nationwide outage. It was all because of a routine software upgrade and the routers in their network automatically share the new settings and those changes exceeded safety levels on key routers. Okay, stay with me. And that caused them to disconnect. Yeah, so I guess, Tom, what that means is that the... the bottom line is it wasn't something more sinister like a a cyber attack or or some kind of hack.
1: Yeah, I think that's really good news here, that it was something a bit more mundane, something almost relatable to the rest of us when you upgrade the you know, the operating system on your phone and then your phone starts to not work properly.
2: We've all had that. So, in a statement, the company says that it's taking steps to ensure this won't happen again. Uh, As of yesterday, those eligible customers were able to start accessing the free data as compensation. It'll be interesting to see what happens at the Senate inquiry when the Optus boss, Kelly Bayer Rosemary, fronts up. Um, it's going to be turned around quite quickly for a Senate inquiry. So they're going to be looking at, you know, how Optus communicated with its customers and, you know, the steps that it took and whether that was adequate and the compo that's on offer. Um, and that's going to be released in a report on December the 9th. So we'll know in a couple of weeks what the verdict is there.
1: Well, I'll be interested to see if people get financial compensation and how much, because this really affected people's businesses, and a bit of free data is not going to go anywhere near far enough to properly compensating those people. And there's concerns that high-level criminals have been released into the community after last week's High Court ruling that asylum seekers were being detained illegally. So some of these people covered by the ruling had their visas cancelled on character grounds, and... (laughs) Some of those were for horrific acts like um, alleged murder and rape, but these people couldn't be deported as no other country would take them. They were effectively stateless. Now, 80 of them are back in the community after the court judgment, the judgment against indefinite immigration detention, and there's a lot of heat on the federal government. Um, The opposition were out saying yesterday that they should have seen this coming and introduced legislation so these people weren't set free. Um, But the Attorney General, Mark Dreyfus uh, is trying to assure the community that their safety is being properly considered here. It will be appropriate visa conditions and uh, the Commonwealth Government will be working with state and territory criminal justice agencies who, of course, are primarily responsible for each of the people concerned.
2: That's Attorney General Mark Dreyfus. What a tight spot this puts, uh, Anthony Albanese and his government in to manage. I mean, as you mentioned there, um, one of the people released is, um, a Malaysian hitman who was convicted and is up for the death penalty in Malaysia. Over a really high-profile murder, uh, it was involving a, a woman who was apparently the mistress of an ex-Prime Minister Uh, So we hear that there have been bridging visas given with individual conditions, which might include regular reporting obligations to keep the community safe. I I think the community is going to want a bit more detail on that, don't you think, Tom?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a really interesting case, the Malaysian hitman. We have a policy of not extraditing people back to countries where they face the death penalty. So that makes sense when, you know, someone's being executed for, say, a drug crime, which is something we, you know, we would give a much lesser sentence for here in Australia. But in this case, that policy seems like, oh, well, maybe he should go back and face the consequences in the country where he committed the crime. So look, it's a really interesting test of our principles and our laws. And yeah, it's, you're right. It will be interesting to see how much pressure mounts on the government to do more about this.
2: And former British Prime Minister David Cameron is back in UK Parliament. He's best known for quitting as Britain's PM in 2016 after leading the failed Yes campaign for the UK to stay in the European Union. So he's becoming Foreign Minister. That job was made available uh, earlier this week when Rishi Sunak sacked the Home Secretary, Suella Braverman, she's stirred the pot a bit over there to put it mildly um she's called homelessness a lifestyle choice lately uh, and also labeled pro-palestinian protests hate marches and everyone assumed this other guy another mp james cleverley would take over but then a black car rocked up and outrolled David Cameron. And he's been out of politics for seven years. He's not even an MP. And so he had to be appointed again at the House of Lords before he could take up the job. How wild. That would be like, you know, John Howard rolling up to Parliament. <laughs> it would be a pretty big thing to get your head around over there, I think.
1: Yeah. And especially given the way he went out, you know, he he brought Brexit um, to the people, but was advocating that uh, the UK stay in the EU, lost that. Uh, <laughs> Boris Johnson sort of pushed um, the Leave campaign and then ended up the leader, and the party's been in a shambles ever since, but just hanging on to government with this new leader, Rishi Sunak, and he reinvites the guy that really started their shaky period. So, yeah, very surprising move, and it'll be interesting to see if um, David Cameron's ambitions stop here at this this ministry portfolio or whether they'll go even higher maybe back to the top mm-hmm. all right catch you later katrina an interview i'm very much looking forward to with sean Turnell. so sean Turnell spent almost two years in prison in myanmar he was finally released in november last year Now, I first met him back at Macquarie Uni in 1999. So a lot of water has gone under the bridge for him. He's now here in the briefing studio. He's told his incredible story in a book called An Unlikely Prisoner. Sean, thank you so much for joining us on The Briefing. Thanks, Tom. It's wonderful to be here. Yeah, so start by telling us about the work you were doing in Myanmar.
0: So Myanmar was locked away from the world for about 50 years. And so what I was trying to do was to help the new government, the new civilian government have been elected, trying to help them bring about economic
1: reform and turn things around. So you're working very closely with Aung San Suu Kyi, who was the leader there. And she has an incredible backstory, spending many years under house arrest by until finally being able to basically come back and lead her country. So that was a huge journey as well. And you, you were very close to her. That's right. So I was her
0: chief economic advisor. And so there just to help her out and her team bring about this economic
1: reform. Okay. So then comes a military coup, which rhymes with a lot of history in that part of the world. So it swings back from a democratically elected government to um, a military junta running it. Within six days, you get a message in your hotel. What does it say and what happens next? So I get a message saying that military
0: intelligence had taken over the hotel and that a security camera was focused on my door and that it was time to get out. How did you feel? Incredibly frightened at that moment uh, and then just thought, okay, I'm going to get out. And so I quickly packed a bag, raced
1: downstairs and, and tried to leave the hotel. You go into the foyer and one by one, military men come into the room and you're surrounded. What happens next? Well, the Australian ambassador arrived, so a bit of a standoff takes Mm. place.
0: I think if she hadn't got there, I would have been taken off immediately. But then we're just sitting around for a few hours making this very awkward small talk. I initially thought they were going to give me a fright and send a message to me and to all the other foreigners and let me go.
1: So tell us about the box. This is where they tank you inside this prison, inside a room, inside another room, it sounds horrific. It was horrific.
0: Yeah, it was a very, very small room, sort of like inside a shipping container, concrete floor, nothing in the room except for a metal chair in the centre with some chains attached to it. And mm. those chains also had some ankle and wrist manacles mm. there. And so it was a yeah,
1: horrific place and I was locked in that box for two months. So you write in the book that previous to this, the toughest thing you'd ever been through was having to tell a student that their essay wasn't very good. Um, suddenly (laughs) there you are, an Australian economist, a relatively small man, um, confronted by these soldiers thrown into this cell. Sounds very claustrophobic, uncomfortable, hot, dark. You don't even really know what time of day it is. What was that like?
0: Yeah, it was all of those things, Tom. And, and just totally unlikely. I mean, the whole thing, yeah, it was horrific. Uh, and the first thing he's trying to, what? what do you do? How do you keep panic at bay? Mm. And the main first thing that comes to mind is to pace up and down, just like mm. a, an animal in the zoo. I mm. think it comes to us instinctively. Um, so I walk up and down and count my steps. How big was this this box? Really tiny. So it was eight steps from one end of the box to the other. And so I used to count that. Um, and again, as a way of you know just
1: trying to stay calm, but yeah, really small space. And then at moments that you have no idea are coming, you're ripped out of that box and interrogated. And what becomes very clear, and this is one of the most fascinating parts of the story, is that these soldiers believe a conspiracy theory that you are somehow in Myanmar at the behest of American billionaire George Soros to undermine Myanmar, to take it over for Western forces. That's right. And it was the combination. They said,
0: I work for George Soros and MI6. Uh, so I was both a spy and a tool of international capitalism was the allegation.
1: But the intriguing detail was that you
0: do know George Soros. You were at his wedding. I was, yeah. So George is, is one of those people who sponsors democracy in many places. So he attracts the hostility of many dictators around the world. But yeah, there's a particular aspect within Myanmar's military
1: who really hate him. I mean, normally this is just a fringe conspiracy theory on the internet. It's not something you imagine traveling all the way into the Myanmar military. These men who are uneducated, that they would know who he is, or even yeah. be a part of this internet conspiracy. But, but how did you know him? Why were you at his wedding? Oh uh, well, because he'd sponsored work on Myanmar's democracy. So
0: I, I got in touch with him and been acquainted with him for actually about 20 years. Um, but always sort of at a distance, you know, mm. not 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 especially close. But uh, but it was interesting to, um, yeah, to get that allegation.
1: Where's your head at during this time? Because you're, you're trying to reach out to your partner, huh, back here in Australia. You don't know how long you're going to be in there. You don't really understand the charges. You're getting fed this conspiratorial line from the interrogators. You eventually work out that there's an investigation in relation to the Official Secrets Act. How does it all unfold and how do you deal with it? really tough so the first thing i had to
0: do was like to think about what were the charges and exactly as you've said i didn't know exactly what the charges were for a long long time so in trying to strategize about how to respond and what to say i had to really you know think deep about everything that i was doing and and the the very sound justifications i had for for you know the sort of work i'd done so i had to think about all of that but yeah a lot of the charges a lot of the accusations coming completely out of left field and completely nonsense so mm. It's hard to respond to something that's just so patently absurd. Mm. Um, So, yeah, so it was quite difficult actually just trying to
1: think logically how to respond in a situation where there was no logic. So about eight months in, you are finally charged and you get moved to a different prison, which sounds even worse. It was, yep. Yeah, up in Napidor, this bizarre capital
0: city of Myanmar, up in the middle of the jungle. Yeah, an awful place. Even worse than the first prison, which goes by the wonderful name of Insane Prison. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, the one up in Napidor
1: was actually even worse. Okay, but you do end up going through some kind of what we could call a legal process. You know, obviously, whether it's fair or not is a completely different question. But this goes on for a year until you're eventually convicted of breaching the Secrets Act. And then it's several months before your release. So, especially thinking back to how we watch it from outside, we're looking at people as as powerful as the US Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, raising your case, our Prime Minister raising your case, Foreign Minister. But did that do anything, or was it really about this internal process inside Myanmar taking its course? I think it was a bit of both. So, the internal process had to run through. So,
0: as soon as I got charged... That was a real low point, because I thought, wow, you know, cause, and I was charged alongside Aung San Suu Kyi and mm. other government ministers, so I thought this is going to take a while, and I knew enough to know that the process would have to go right to the end. So even though Blinken and Anthony Albanese and, and you know, all these people around the world were calling for my release, I thought, okay, this internal process is going to have to run through, because they want to use me to get to Su Kyi and some mm. of the others. They have a tradition of releasing people on these significant religious and national days and this was one of them. Uh, It was actually unexpected though to us and I'd spoken to my wife Ha the day before and we'd both agreed that the situation didn't look good. I was Mm. going to be there for a few more months. I would spend another Christmas inside
1: Uh, and then, yeah, the day after this particular event, boom, I'm out. So this is November 2022. That's right. eh? Yeah, it was just incredible. So you're a great writer and you write the book with a lot of humour all the way through. So I guess that's the benefit of being able to to look at it now from afar and interpret those moments in sequence, which is the beauty of writing a book like this. But it sort of almost lifts the story up above the sheer panic and the muck and the stench and the discomfort and the claustrophobia and the uncertainty. You were taken to the depths of the human experience yeah, I think that's right. And, and I
0: think you used the, the right words, uh, the, like the sort of disgust and the, just the everyday uh, sordidness of the, of the cell, of a, of a squat toilet that overflowed, of rats and insects coming into the cell and the rain and the damp and, and it was hot and, and, you know, the prison was over 100 years old and it, it was just horror beyond belief. Mm. Um, but but humour was a really strong part of it. For much of the period, I was in solitary confinement, but in other times, I was with some of the others, and part of the reason we got through was we we sort of backed each other up, supported each other, but humour, a very strong part of it, because the thing was so absurd, just on a daily basis, the nonsense that would take place, so we we spent a lot of time laughing uh, Mm. at, at what was going on. So you weren't tortured, you weren't starved, you weren't beaten? I was in in I would say a mild way mm. I, I was roughed up a few times and mm. and kicked and punched a few times but but I never had the full-on torture that my Myanmar colleagues had so you know one of my Myanmar colleagues for instance had electrodes attached to him uh, and electrocuted and beatings were really common amongst mm. them and and I used to see prisoners all the time who'd been beaten and whipped, and they had sort of scars on their back and and ointment applied after Mm. these beatings. So it was certainly all around, and I could hear screams of people being tortured when I was in the box. But apart from being roughed up, they were sort of very careful about me because, of course, they knew that there was international attention. They were particularly worried that I might die on them. Um, and so they're always taking my pulse. So even though they kept me in these terrible conditions, the food was awful, everything was just horrible, but they, they were very anxious that I didn't die on them.
1: So you got into this mess because you love this country and you were really interested in using your economic knowledge to help lift up the people of Myanmar. So where are the people of Myanmar now in that journey and where is Aung San Suu Kyi? Yeah, so the people overall are in a terrible state. The country's in a terrible state. Um,
0: it's poorer now than it's ever been. This military is savage beyond belief. You know, like the worst reports we see around the world are all there. daily occurrences in Myanmar, massacres all the time. You know, one of the reasons I wanted to write the book was actually to pay tribute to these brave and extraordinarily generous Burmese people who kept me alive. Mm. But yeah, for Aung San Suu Kyi, yeah, things are not good either. Still remains in this awful jail up in Napidor. In that same little box they made for her, basically? That That's my understanding, yeah. yeah. So, so they've released no information except disinformation, actually. Mm. So a couple of months ago, they claimed that she was under house arrest, which I've found out is certainly not true. Uh, she's still in that prison. And, um, you know, conditions are not good for her.
1: But the treatment for the whole country is just awful. You've really spelled out your story in detail here. Does that come at a risk for you um, potentially receiving any kind of unwanted attention from the Burmese junta or does it come at a risk for some of the people you've talked about? So a bit of both. Um, For me personally, it comes
0: at a bit of a risk because after I was outspoken when I first got back to Australia, the junta removed my amnesty and reimposed the charges. So Mm. if I was to go back to Myanmar today, I would be then jailed and have to spend another three years there. Are there other countries that have extradition agreements with Myanmar? That's always the big worry. The regime in Myanmar, though, is so beyond the pale internationally that I cannot imagine that anyone would act on them. But technically, that would be a possibility. But again, you know, just they're so savage that I cannot imagine that regimes around them that are not democracies, it's hard to imagine they would actually do it, but it is a risk factor and it has to be something that I have in mind all the time, unfortunately. So, So I've got that hanging over me all the time. My colleagues, likewise, uh, it's very dangerous for them. I had to think a lot about what I revealed in the book with respect to them. I spoke specifically to them when I was in the prison about whether they, how much were they comfortable in me telling their story. Uh,
1: and overwhelmingly, the response was, Sean, please tell our story. Wow. That was Sean Turnell, and his book is a really good read. He's a very good writer. So many interesting details, insights, and humour and clearly just an incredible story to tell. It's called An Unlikely Prisoner. Listener.